0: plushcare.com slash weight loss. Health behaviors are as contagious among people as catching a cold or a flu. So in other words, if your best friends drink too much, do drugs, are unhappy, are obese, that's all measurably contagious. There's something about places where people are really living longer and better lives that especially For those of us whose lives are imbued with worry and hurry and stress, to all of a sudden slow down and marinate in an environment where social interactions are more important than money and status.
1: Hi, I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a podcast about living a more beautiful and fired up life. Here we will continue my 10 year nomadic journey living out of one bag in search of more connection, more awakeness, less consuming, less loneliness, and less bloody scrolling. I'll be inviting you to join me in finding better ways to radically love and save our one wild and precious life on this planet. Dan Bootner is a National Geographic Fellow and New York Times best-selling author, and he holds three Guinness Records for various ludicrous long bike rides across the planet. He's also an actual bona fide explorer who's discovered things about ancient civilization and most notably about cultures around the world where people live the longest, which is how he and I met. Almost 20 years ago, Dan travelled the world to reverse engineer longevity, to find out what people who were living in pockets of the world that had the most centenarians per head of population were doing right. He found five such pockets, or blue zones, and then identified nine principles or secrets to living long and well, wrote five books. The latest is called The Blue Zones Challenge, and it's a four-week plan to add 10 years to your life. Now, the wild idea he puts forward after all of this is that you don't have to try to change your behavior with diets and exercise plans. You need to change your surroundings, which throws everything on its head, or as we used to run as a headline at Cosmo when I was editor there, everything you thought you knew is wrong, which is the kind of stuff I always love exploring. Dan and I met when I wrote a blog post back shortly after the last Ice Age, around about 2009, I think it was, I referred to his stupidly simple principles for longevity, which is a turn of phrase in my parts. But from his part, somewhere between Minnesota and wherever he was exploring at the time, Dan wrote to me in the comments in a mock injured kind of way, oh, stupidly simple, hey, only took seven years of my life and thus began a combative long-distance friendship I wound up helping him, actually, on one of his Nat Geo projects in Ikaria, which is an island in Greece. It's one of the blue zones, which we'll get to in a moment. But just some quick other bio stuff so you have context here. Dan, in 1995, also invented a genre of exploration that got online audiences, I mean, this was super early days, to direct teams of experts to solve mysteries around the world, solve the mystery of the 9th century, Maya Collapse. Another retraced Darwin's route in the Galapagos and followed Marco Polo's trail on the Silk Road. More recently, he has rolled out his Blue Zones blueprint to cities across the US. Municipalities and cities employ him to reverse, reverse engineer the principles into the infrastructure of the communities and it's added years to life expectancy and massive reductions in smoking and healthcare costs. Over the years, we've travelled to meet each other in bars in Brooklyn, tavernas in Greece, always sharing red wine, and I'll make sure we get to this in our chat, and generally engaging in philosophically wistful chats about the nomadic life and, well, the pulse of life broadly. So, on the day his book went straight to Amazon number two, I welcome you, Dan Bootner, to my humble and wild podcast. Making
0: number two on Amazon is not nearly the accomplishment of landing as landing on Sarah Wilson's wild podcast. So, right now is the the summit.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You are still flattering me after all these years. Now, where in the world are you at the moment? I'm on the southern tip of South Beach in Miami, Florida. Yeah. Kind of a
0: blue zone actually. I'm looking at the ocean.
1: Awesome. So how many interviews have you done today? I think I've got you at the end of the day. It's been a long day, right?
0: Yes. I think I've done 17 of them. All in preparation for this. (laughs) There you go
1: again. (laughs) Now look, I had to scroll back through the dusty files of the interwebs to work out when it was we actually met. And it was 2009 on my blog Do you remember this? I somehow managed to insult you from afar by referring to your stupidly simple principles for living a long life. And I think you waded in and went, Stupidly simple, hey? Only took seven years of my life to develop them. (laughs) And then, do you remember? I think I then scrambled to explain that it's a turn of phrase that we use in Australia and that I'm really sorry and I have full respect for your work and blah, blah, blah. And then, I think you came back and said that in the meantime, while I'd been scrambling around, you had Google searched me and worked out that we had quite a few things in common. Do you remember that?
0: I do. I remember meeting you, coming to Australia for a speech. And I remember it was so cool because I knew you were a high-powered editor and journalist and you showed up on a bicycle, which uh, immediately impressed me. At
1: a wine bar. We've always met at wine bars. And,
0: And plus you were unbelievably chic. So uh you know it's, it's a perfect combination in my in my in my book
1: I think it was at that that meeting that you invited me to Ikaria to do some work with you or at least be present while you were looking at the food habits on the island and I ended up there for about six weeks, I think in the end
0: yeah that, that place sort of um takes you in like an embrace and, and doesn't uh, doesn't release you easily mm. and uh, you know i I was just back there about uh, six weeks ago and of course, they still remember you there, the, the famous Sarah Wilson and that you you made quite an impression on them.
1: They were beautiful hosts, I mean Thayer and Eleni. They totally took me in At a time in my life where I was pretty vulnerable, I mean, I found that experience pretty pretty tough. I remember Eleni picked us up from the airport and she looked in the rear vision mirror at me, and she's a tough nut, you know, and she she said, "Ah, Sarah." Ikaria, this island, it will either um, embrace you or, or it will spit you out. Either way, you have no choice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's, mm-hmm. That about sums it up. So it's So, you know, many people have gone to Ikaria um, searching for um, some insight into longevity. And many people have been completely transformed and changed their lives. And there's just something, you know, Blue Zones isn't about taking a pill or a supplement or a quick fix to live longer. It's about an environment, a lifestyle. And there's something about places where people are really living longer and better lives that especially for those of us whose lives are imbued with worry and hurry and stress to all of a sudden slow down and marinate in a, uh, in an environment where social interactions are more important than money and status, and and uh, people eat peasant foods and and uh, take time to um, uh, enjoy a walk, yeah, instead of uh, work out to get buff, it's just a different
1: philosophy, but amazingly powerful on many levels. Well, maybe we can kick off by you actually just listing off the five blue zones, just so that people know. These are areas in the world where people live the longest, I guess, have the most centenarians as well. So could you just list those off for us? They sort of still exist, but yeah.
0: So, you know, the idea was funded by the National Institutes on Aging, our government, and on assignment for National Geographic we set off to, in a sense, reverse engineer longevity. So in, in other words, instead of looking for a fountain of youth in a Petri dish or, or a, a, a test tube, we worked with demographers, and I think maybe you've met some of them, uh, who expertise is looking at worldwide populations and parsing through census data. And what we're mostly looking for is the lowest rate of middle age mortality. Um, essentially, you know, people our age and maybe a little, uh, right, right around our age, uh, who have the best chance to reach a healthy age, 93 people don't realize this, but making it to age 100, either in Australia or America or Europe, there's only about a one in 2,500 chance right now, but people listening right now with an average set of genes, if they do everything right, they ought to be able to hit 92 or 93, both australia and and the united states were missing about a dozen of those years and these blue zones are gaining the years and this whole you know it's been a almost 15 year project now has been to distill down exactly what these people are doing what are the common denominators and what are the lessons that people living in a modern world can take away and harness to to get all the good years they deserve.
1: Yeah. So I remember um, when we were in Ikaria, I remember you telling me, I mean, there's only about 8,000 people on the island, but there are more than 90 people over the age of 100, and that might even be more now. Ikaria in Greece, it's an island in Greece, quite a remote one. It's regarded as wild, right, like one of the wildest places in Greece. Really and is. the Greeks, when you tell them that you've been to Ikaria, they go, whoa. Whoa, you know, like even in in Greece it's considered to be, you know, off the charts kind of mad because they just live very purely and freely. But what are the other four blue zones? The island of Sardinia, the
0: Nuoro province specifically, you have the highest concentration of male centenarians in the world. In uh, the island archipelago of Okinawa, you have the highest proportion of female centenarians in the world or concentration. The Nicoya Peninsula of Costa Rica uh, you have the lowest rate of middle age mortality. And what's remarkable about that place, they spend about one-fifteenth the amount we do on health care. Uh, so proof that you do not have to be rich to live a long time. Yeah. And then finally, in the United States, it's among the Seventh-day Adventists live about eight to 10 years longer than their North American counterparts there.
1: So let's go to those nine stupidly simple principles that you actually identified. You don't have to rattle them all off. People can actually go to your books to find those. But what are some of the main ones that um, you identified over the last 15 to 20 years looking into these blue zones?
0: Yes. So for one of my books, The Blue Zone Solution... I worked with Walter Willett, who I think you know from Harvard, yeah, to do, do. A, a meta-analysis. So if you want to know what a centenarian ate to live to be 100, you have to know what they were eating as a child and a young adult and middle age and, and retired. You can't just ask a 100-year-old what they're eating because they don't remember. You know, if I, if I asked you what you had for lunch a week ago Tuesday, you probably couldn't tell me. But By aggregating dietary surveys that have been done over the past 100 years in all blue zones, we see very clearly that 90 to 100% of all the calories they intake are whole and plant-based. They're eating mostly a complex carbohydrate diet. Not simple. They don't eat a lot of sugar, uh, almost no refined sugar. But uh, the the, the cornerstones of every uh, longevity diet in the world are... Beans, greens, nuts, whole grains, and tubers, I would put, you know, sort of fifth. Sweet potato. Sweet potatoes, yes. Yeah, the longest lived women in the world until 1970,
1: two-thirds of their caloric intake came from purple sweet potatoes. So, uh, Yeah, that's really interesting. It's interesting that you specify women because – you know, we've both traversed the era of the keto diet and the paleo diet and all of this kind of thing. And I've always had a problem with it. You know, you've had an issue with it as well, I, I know. But a big problem with it is that the studies have always been done on men and women actually need a lot more carbohydrates, particularly in the form of these sort of sweet potatoes being identified as the best form of it. I have no idea. That's fascinating. Yeah. And so women actually need carbohydrates to, in in that sort of beautiful form, i.e. it's, you know, as natural as they come, women actually need these kinds of carbohydrates, these complex carbohydrates to function best hormonally, which affects then, of course, every aspect of your health profile. So yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that at all. So yeah, so that's the dietary aspect. What else is there?
0: But but also uh, they have vocabulary for purpose. Uh, Ikigai in Okinawa, Plan de Vida in Costa Rica, I think you felt the purpose, uh, how it imbued the people in Icaria. A very clever scientist from the National Institute on Aging named Robert Butler uh, examined the writings of people uh, retrospectively, and he found that those people who could clearly articulate their sense of purpose were living about eight years longer than people who were rudderless. And you know, I always say that if you could put purpose in a capsule, it would be a billion dollar blockbuster drug. but it's not something we hear a lot about because it's very uh, difficult for marketers to to sell it to us and I don't know about Australians, but there is a big purpose deficit in America right now. Only about a third of Americans actually find purpose at, in their in their in their work um, according to Gallup so uh, knowing your sense of purpose, putting family first keeping your aging parents nearby, investing in your partner, uh, belonging to a faith. Uh, it doesn't matter what faith. It could be Christian or Jewish or Muslim, but it appears that people who are showing up four times a month live four to 14 years longer than people who don't go to church. Wow. And it may just be they have better social networks or maybe something as simple as they're less likely to engage in risky behavior. But being part of a faith seems to be a close in play, uh, strategy for for adding years. I'm not particularly-
1: four to fourteen years. I mean, that's incredibly significant. It's interesting you say that we don't have a dialogue around that anymore. We used to. We very much used to. But um, I've mentioned this on the podcast before that Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, he documents this um, from the perspective of who actually managed to survive Auschwitz and the and the concentration camps during the war. And the number one thing that he identified was a sense of faith and purpose beyond oneself. And generally it was either a belief in God or an absolute adherence to the family over your own interests. Yeah, um, it, it comes up throughout the traditional uh, cultures. It comes up through uh, religious texts, but we don't have a dialogue around it because today our purpose is driven by the dollar.
0: Yeah. Or status. Yeah.
1: Mm.
0: And, you know, so many people wake up in the morning and like, what am I here for? And what do I do? Does my job make any difference? And there's a certain existential stress that comes with that, that probably is triggering the inflammatory response. And we don't exactly know why it's uh, contributing to it. Maybe people with a strong sense of purpose are more likely to take their medicines or they're more likely to stay active or more likely to make an effort to eat healthy. Mm. Uh, but it's just such a strong uh, correlation. It's not causation,
1: but correlation, I agree. There's no
0: causation here, but nothing you're going to hear today is causation. It's all strongly correlated, and um, it's. but it is repeated in all five blue zones, and when you see the same correlation in five disparate populations, it tells you, you know, it starts to point at causation.
1: Yeah, no, I've read quite a number of studies that speak to that 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 kind of sense of larger purpose piece um, in relation to a whole range of things, including anxiety, you know. And Eric Fromm refers to it as a moral aloneness that has gripped our culture and it actually causes despair. I mean, in the US, you'd be aware of this, Dan, diseases of despair are such that it has brought the life expectancy of Americans down for three or four years in a row for the first time in recent history diseases of despair. I totally believe that. That stem from a moral aloneness. Yeah. So that's, so So yeah, we've covered off two. Um, Friendships, I think is a really big one, isn't it? I think I remember reading about that years ago. Yeah.
0: So uh, Nicholas Christakis did most of this work. He's at Yale now, but did the work at at Harvard. And, you know, he found that health behaviors are as contagious among people as mm. catching a cold or a flu. So in other words, if your best friends are uh, drink too much, do drugs, are unhappy, are obese, that's all measurably contagious. So in blue zones, the, the circle of friends um, tend to be very strong. That I use the Okinawan term often, the moai. A committed circle of four or five friends. Um, but they tend to be people who reinforce the right behaviors. You see this very strongly among the Adventists. They, to your, if your three best friends are sitting around watching television and uh, huddled around the Barbie, you know, eating sausages and and uh, baby back ribs, well, you're probably going to eat and, and do the same thing. Whereas if your three best friends, their idea of recreation is bicycling or gardening or playing pickleball if they care about you on a bad day speaking of this disease of despair it's it's a lot easier to have a positive mental attitude if you're surrounded by people who care about you and also have a positive mental attitude and then You know, we're big believers, you know, by looking at Blue Zones, that a whole plant-based diet, the closer you can get to that, it's not a restricted, but a a vegetarian or vegan in your immediate social network is going to show you not only where to find delicious plant-based food, but also often show you how to make it. And therein lies the real secret to eating healthier you know, it's not restricting yourself. It's not measuring your calories. It's not bucking up and having heroic discipline for the next 40 years. Uh, it's finding the this healthy food that you love and nobody has to convince you. you
1: well, that actually brings us quite conveniently to the wild idea that I identify, particularly in your latest book. After 15 to 20 years of watching this, living in these countries, delving down deeper and deeper into the specifics of it all, Where you have arrived at is, and I think it's pretty wild, I think it's pretty cool, it totally gels with my thinking around these kinds of things, is that you don't need to change your individual behaviour. So it's not about willpower for sticking to a diet or muscling your way through a gym workout and getting the proper you know, routine in place. It's about changing your surroundings. So instead of changing yourself, you change your surroundings. Can you explain that?
0: Yes. So, I mean, most diets and exercise programs that are pitched to us constantly, especially around the new years, expect us to remember to do something, to to muster discipline, to have self-control for years and decades. And I'll tell you one thing for sure, when it comes to longevity, there's nothing you can do for the next few weeks or few months that's going to have any impact on how long you live at all, short of not dying. So uh, when you think of longevity, you need to think of, of things that are going to help you do the right things uh, for decades, for long enough, so and avoid the wrong things so you don't develop a chronic disease. By the way, the type of longevity that Blue Zones discusses uh, is not increasing the capacity of the human machine. The human machine is built, as far as we know, on average to hit mid-90s. So, there's nothing I can tell you that is going to tell you how to live to 100. But the average listener here should be able to make it to 92 or 93. The only way we're going to do that is doing the right thing for long enough. In blue zones, nobody at age 50 is saying to themselves, well, oh darn it, I'm going to get on that longevity diet and live another 50 years. Uh, they're not joining CrossFit. They're not taking supplements. Uh, they're not expecting their willpower to carry them through. They simply live in environments where the healthy choice is not only easy, that's become kind of a cliche, but it's unavoidable. Mm. And therein lies the secret, I believe, in both of our countries at at producing not only a healthier population, but a happier population.
1: So what you're talking about is structures that essentially nudge people in this direction, where it just becomes subconscious. They don't even have to think about it. It's just what you do. Right. So
0: the Cornell Food Lab... Uh, found that we make on average about 220 food decisions a day. Wow! You know, what are we going to have for lunch? Are we going to have a vegetable side? Are we going to put salt on it? Are we going to put hot sauce on it? Are we going to have milk or fruit juice or water? Uh, only about 10% of those uh, food decisions are conscious. So even if you found the will willpower and presence of mind to govern those Conscious decisions for long enough, you still have the unconscious decisions. And what uh, the, this book I wrote, you know, came out this week, the Blue Zone Challenge. I've harvested from the academic literature uh, about a half a dozen ways for you to to engineer your unconscious decision, those ninety percent that we uh, food decisions to make them uh, better, not only consuming fewer calories, but consuming better calories.
1: Well, I saw a few of them because obviously the book's just come out and I had to scan a PDF at warp speed this morning before we spoke after a swim in the ocean, I've got to say. So I know that you're a big fan of the slow cooker. And look, off air, I'll give you my rant on the slow cooker. I might just touch on a few of them here. Uses less electricity than a light bulb, preserves all the nutrients because it's cooked at such a low heat, and it's a dump and run solution. I love that dump and run. (laughs) You just, you can't, and you can't stuff up a slow cooker meal. You really, really can't. And if you, if you must, you can throw frozen peas in a handful of frozen peas at the end will generally fix any slow cooker meal that might not have the right flavor, but there's some others. I mean, I think one of the nudges that I read about was um, removing the toaster from your kitchen bench.
0: Yeah. Again, this is a, a Cornell food lab. So they followed two groups of people. Uh, who started with you know at a base weight and the people who didn't have a toaster on their counter or their kitchen bench uh weighed six pounds or about three kilos less uh after two years than people who kept the uh same thing by the way with a uh, with junk food if you if you keep chips or, or on the on the um uh, kitchen bench with a clip on them uh it provide it's a nudge we, I like to joke that we're all on a seafood diet. We tend to eat the food we see. And one of the easiest ways to engineer unnecessary calories out of our diet is to set up your kitchen so the unhealthy calories are out of the way. So, uh, and the prompts are out of the way. So, putting the toaster away, uh, establishing a junk food drawer where you have to stoop down, reach high, or go around the corner. These all have measure measurable techniques to engineer calories out of your kitchen experience
1: and some of the foods um that you recommend i mean i know that you famously well you love beans Uh but you've identified that they'll add four years to your life
0: is that right yeah so i'm i'm one study done in the mediterranean that and they've followed about a thousand people and and um People who are eating about a cup of beans a day are living about four years longer. Of course, that's different depending on your age. But, you know, Sarah, I wrote recently a story for National Geographic magazine. they are very careful about their facts about the diet of longevity. It was about a year and a half ago now. Um, But I spoke to, I believe, the top uh, nutrition academics in the world, not just the United States, a lot of them in Europe. Uh, some in Australia. And it seems the component of our diet that's largely been overlooked, you know, we tend to be obsessed about protein and carbohydrates, you know, and all fat, we have about 100 trillion uh, bacteria in our guts it weighs about three kilos, by the way, it's arguably the biggest organ in our body. And If they're fed right, they produce something called short chain fatty acids, which fine tune our immune system. They mute uh, inflammation. They even govern your mood positively. The only thing those healthy bacteria consume and pay us back so handsomely is fiber. They don't consume fat. They don't consume carbohydrates. They don't consume protein. And the standard American diet is almost completely devoid of of, uh, fiber. So my breakfast every day, I actually make a Sardinian minestrone, uh, which is very similar to the longevity stews that we were eating in Icaria. There's two or three cut types of beans. Uh, there's celery, carrots, onions, garlic. Uh, there's barley in there. When you combine beans and barley, you get a whole protein. I finish it with a little extra virgin olive oil. Just a little two. Yeah. Tablespoon. Um, Yeah, Uh, there's probably 25 strains of fiber there. And, you know, we have about a 1000 strains of bacteria in our gut, they like different kinds of fiber. So, you know, I feed my microbiome every morning, first thing. But also when you're eating beans, it's a slow burn food. Uh, we, We know that people eat beans, their appetite is satiated for about four hours as compared to, you know, eating uh, cereal, which often has sugar in it, or even eggs and bacon, uh, they, they they tend to make you sluggish. So I like to start my day with a, a breakfast that's going to sustain me and my microbiome. And uh, I find that in Sardinian minestrone.
1: That bacteria piece is also very related to anxiety. So serotonin now is seem to be mostly produced in the gut. So 70 to 90% of it is produced in the gut. That's right. And so we now identify that, you know, if you have fire in your gut, you have fire in the brain. So if you're getting inflammation in the gut from not eating enough fiber and you've got too much of the wrong bacteria, it will actually go up into the brain and cause inflammation, which then causes anxiety. So, um, all of this stuff interlinks, all of the stuff that you and I have been working on for years very much feeds into each other. Are there any specific beans that are better than others, if we can get a little bit granular with it?
0: There's some small argument for black beans because uh, they have the same antioxidants as blueberries. You know, nuts also. People who eat a handful of nuts live two years longer, and people ask, what are the healthiest nuts? And I say the the, the, the best nut is the nut you're going to eat. And the best bean is the bean bean you're going to eat for the long run. So most of the time that involves switching it up pretty regularly.
1: Yeah. And for me, look, I have issues digesting both nuts and legumes. Um, What works for me, for anyone who's out there listening and also has some gut issues, um, I find chickpeas and red lentils to be particularly soothing. Um, Make sure you rinse, soak and cook them properly. And then nuts, I find Brazil nuts to be particularly good. They're very easy to get organic and they contain high levels of selenium, which is wonderful for thyroid health. So they're the ones I go for. I find cashews and peanuts problematic, but there you go. Red wine. Can we get to red wine? (laughs) Because this is the good news piece of it all. And you and I have always felt, you know, intuitively that red wine is a great thing. Um, And when we're talking red wine, we're talking the really robust ones. I mean, there's the Sardinian one, the Canal, that is particularly good. Um, It's almost like the more resveratrol, the more tannins, uh, the better, right? I think you're just cutting to a fridge right now. There we go. (laughs) Is that from Sardinia, that one? Yeah, it's from Sardinia. It's a canonal. and they
0: call this bino Nero, which means black wine, because the- it's You can eat it with a knife and fork. Oh, <laughs> the <laughs> I even remember? Yeah, so it turns out that most of the antioxidants, and there's another one called procyanid, which has been shown to reduce inflammation of the endothelial, or the lining of the arteries, and- that is produced actually in the skin as a reaction to sunshine radioactivity and the and the uh, grapes grown in Sardinia are at high altitude uh, and they get get three hundred thirty days of sun every year. so they react by turning very red vino ne, black wine and the now, the it's the the skins and the and the seeds are macerated for fifteen days so All that good stuff from the skin ends up actually in the wine. And um, they drink a little bit every day. And when I say a little bit, they'll maybe a little bit at 10 in the morning, a little bit with lunch, a small glass, just a two ounce glass or something with their friends after work, and then a little bit with dinner. And um, I know there's a lot of controversy around should you drink or should you not, but I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that people in most of the Blue Zones are enjoying a little bit of wine or some other uh, fermented spirit every day as part of a social
1: uh, ceremony or uh, accompanying their food. And that's the point, isn't it? It's the social aspect and it's also the food aspect because I personally find a glass of red wine helps me digest my food in the evening. And I have one glass of red wine I would say five or six nights a week And it, for me, is it it actually really does help me process my food. It makes sure my whole gastrointestinal tract is relaxed. And then if I'm with friends, it's a really nice way to arrive in the moment together, especially when we live frenetic lives. You know, it shifts gears. Um, I'm happy not to drink more than that, and I've always had a, a belief that if you allow a glass of wine Um, rather than putting the, no, you must not drink it, then you can actually modulate things far better. I think you can actually practice moderation when you allow yourself that grace. And within those, there's kind of rituals. I mean, it's the ritual around drinking that is, I think, very particular to those blue zones as well. They don't drink to get drunk.
0: That's right. They're not drinking shots of tequila, uh, although Cipro every once in a while will inspire certain behaviours and in Ikaria, but um,
1: the Panayiri, I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's next level. Although they do water their wine down with uh, with water, don't they? It's kind of yeah. and half and half with goat liver uh, and pork um, pork broth. Remember that? Yeah, I do. <laughs> you know, these, these old ladies would wander around with vats of pork broth because they, they felt that that absorbed it. Yeah, about
0: four in the morning after you've been drinking and dancing for six hours, then the, the goat livers and the pork broth come around. Um, but, uh, but isn't
1: it incredible? Those those paneria are, are just surreal, aren't they? In summer, just so that everybody listening understands, these are these parties that Every village has one of them. You know, Every little tiny village across the island will have these parties and they're free. The entire island is invited to come along and the locals just donate their wine and their pork and their livers and, you know, the village priest will be there at five in the morning. There will be three-year-olds wandering around at two in the morning. Um, They're generally outdoors in the forest and they're a wild celebration that will go for 48 hours and it sounds like gosh oh, you could only do one a summer they back it up don't they
0: yeah there's there's about 90 of them a, a season and the other beautiful part about it, and this gets to the bigger ethos of blue zones uh, people donate the wine and the food but then they charge a little bit you know they you weigh your food by the kilo and they they do charge you by the a carafe of wine, but all that money then goes for a family that needs it, or uh, to prepare a school, or to build a bridge. It goes back to the community, so there's there's this beautiful virtuous circle. It's not just a bacchanal to have to get drunk. It is uh, the songs they sing uh, are about their history, about getting free from Turkey, and uh, it reinforces social bonds, builds new bonds, um, always does some social good, and uh, I happen to know that some of the activities immediately following these panieris suggest uh, rebuilding the, the forthcoming generation. Right. What do you mean by that?
1: Uh, well, it happens in the weeds. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I missed that innuendo. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. So, a mating ritual is what you're trying to say. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I
0: was trying to be circumspect
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I just didn't get it. Sorry, I didn't help you out there. <laughs> ready to pop the question? The jewelers at Bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door.
0: That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: One of the things I also came across in your next book, because your, your book actually works through a bunch of challenges so that you can access these Secrets to longevity, and you can start to implement them into your own life. So, you've talked about some nudges in and around food. The friendship piece is an interesting one, especially in our cultures, right? Because I think you make the point that in our culture, most people have not added a friend to their circle in five years. Is that right?
0: Well, I know in the United States in the uh, 80s and 90s, the average American had three friends. We're now down to under two. And um, and loneliness, we know, is if you have fewer than three friends, you can count on uh, on a bad day. It's a technical definition of loneliness. Lonely people live about seven years shorter lives than people who are well connected. You know the the, the the book, the this Blue Zone Challenge. You know, I never really. I'm more like you. I'm more of a journalist, uh, um, not you know. I never set out to be sort of a health guru, but you know, I, I the first book, Blue Zones it took me five years to write and it, I, I think I captured pretty well what the world's longest lived people do Uh blue zone solution. I think captured pretty well about, um, you know, things that, that keep it working in their lives. And this blue zone challenge is specifically, uh, harnesses the available science to get people to shape their surroundings for the long run. So they don't have to think about it. So it's, um, we, we, you know, it's intentionally four weeks, so we know people will stay, keep their intention for about four weeks. It's intentionally timed around around the first of January because people are making resolutions. And I would say to your question, the most disruptive section of this is about uh, curating your social circle. Uh, the, as I mentioned before, obesity is measurably contagious, and while I would not tell you to dump your old, unhealthy friends, I will tell you that proactively finding uh, two or three healthy people, ideally doing this challenge with them, but if nothing else, finding these healthy people and doing what they do uh, is one of the best things you can do for your overall health. Because once again, friends tend to be long-term adventures. You and I have been friends for 12 years. You've influenced me in many ways. My sugar consumption is way down because of I quit sugar. And we've hung out enough and and you're just being with you has had a contagious nature to it for me. So um, essentially what I'm saying is the best thing you can do this January is uh, find two or three Sarah Wilsons to surround yourself with. uh,
1: (laughs) God forbid. I don't recommend that. (laughs) Uh, I do. I do.
0: She's very humble, but she's a blast.
1: What are some examples of how people have done that? Because I know that you've studied it, but also probably in doing this press tour, you've managed to hear some really great stories. I mean, the Okinawas, Okinawan people call them... moi. moi. Moi, which is, you know, these social groups of sort of five to ten people and you do activities with them. And I think that's really quite important is the activity aspect as opposed to the just kind of, you know, bumming out on the couch what are some examples that you've heard just to give people a really good feel for it? You know, my,
0: my business, uh, You know, I'm hired by American cities to lower the obesity rate and I get paid by insurance company. I have 200 people in this company now and we've been in 50 cities. And one of the things we do is we bring sometimes up to 500 people together. We circle them up. And we ask them a number of questions. Uh, We ask them to look at each other as people are answering these questions and pay attention to people who answer the questions like us. And we ask questions like, raise your hand if you've seen a Disney movie lately. Raise your hand if your idea of a perfect vacation is hiking, going to Caribbean beach, or staying at home. And there is this term in psychology known as homophily. Human beings tend to like other human beings who are like them, who share values, who share interests, who share demographics. So, you know, one of the best places to start is to find people who you think are like you and then organize your meetings around a healthy activity. And when we do this in cities, we make it very simple. It's simply walking together or eating uh, plant-based meals together. Um, So then you build this social network around a healthy activity, and that makes it long-lasting, and therefore offers a real promise of adding years to
1: our lives. Uh, But there's other ways to do it. Yeah, that's a really good point, Dan. During lockdown, I came across various Facebook groups that were set up all around, reaching out to strangers and saying, "Look, I need someone to walk with. Who would like to walk with me at such and such a time from here to there twice a week?" And then I I found myself doing something similar. I mostly out of lockdown as soon as we could actually venture out into to bushland again i got a group of people together and just said hey i go hiking once or twice a month who would like to come i'm just going to send out the dates and where i'm going and it's always on public transport we meet at the central station and you know i invite people to bring their their coffee in a keep cup I love to bring healthy snacks and we walk and we generally have a topic to talk about invariably climate <laughs> um but yeah these no surprise. Yeah, these groups, and it's always four to five women that join me, and I've done about four or five of them now.
0: That, Sarah, that is incredibly powerful, and I'll tell you why. Walking offers about 90% of the benefits of training for a marathon. And, in fact, if you're older than 30 or 40, exerting yourself can actually be a big negative. So gentle, low-intensity physical activity is what we see in the Blue Zone. You're building a social network. Um, you're talking out your problems, you're probably having meaningful conversations. It's enjoyable, so you're more likely to do it for months or years at a time as compared to you know, CrossFit, where you completely exhaust yourself and you, you know, it's the last thing you want to do after a hard day is go do that again. So it's one of these subtly powerful things that we tend to overlook in the onslaught of marketing messages that are trying to sell us some other program.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, as you know, I'm a massive, massive hiker and one of my favourite factoids, and there's about 40,000 studies that have been done to show why hiking in nature works from a health point of view, from a mental health point of view and from also establishing a connection with meaning. One of my favourites is this idea that walking goes at the same pace as our ability to have discerning thought. Oh, wow. Yeah, we emerged as humans vertical, you know, from all fours up to vertical beings, and our prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that controls discerning thought, which is able to sort of back away from the amygdala, which is the the primal fight or flight kind of mechanism, which causes anxiety. It emerged as we got upright. And so it emerged to the left right motion as we walked around savannas and the, you know, the forests and the early jungles. And that is a really important thing to access. So for anyone who wants to access a more meaningful life, which is of course one of your principles, walking is just that, you know, it goes straight to it. it, it it's got a, It's kind of a quadruple whammy effect, isn't it? I mean, it just ticks off all the boxes. But Dan, why don't we move on to some of the benefits of those I think cities around America that you've worked with, where you've applied these blue zone principles. And I'd love for you to just rattle off some brag statements about some of the achievements that you achieved in these cities.
0: Yeah. So Fort Worth, Texas, uh, one of the least healthy cities in the world, uh, in the United States rather, moved up uh, out of the 162 ranking, they were 157. We moved them up to about 45. So their their uh, obesity rate dropped by 6%. Their smoking rate dropped by about 9%. This is a city of a million people. Uh, in the beach cities of Los Angeles, we saw a 15% drop in BMI, which meant 1,900 fewer obese people in a population of 120,000. People reported about 20% higher levels of life satisfaction. Fort Worth, uh, they also, according to Gallup, uh, saw about a quarter of a billion dollars of s- per year savings in a projected health care costs because of the work there. And w- we measured it in every city. We've been in 54 of these cities, and we, we never come in and try to convince an entire population to change their behavior. We come in with three squads. One squad works with city council. And by the way, we only come into a city if the public sector and the private sector specifically invite us in with pledging to follow what we ask them to do. So we really take over an entire city and we help them with their uh, food policy to favor fruits, vegetables, nuts and beans over fast food and sodas and junk food to favor the pedestrian and cyclist over the motorist. To favor the non smoker over the smoker. And, and we can usually get a half a dozen or so policies passed in the five year in each of those categories, which make a huge difference. And then we have a second squad that fans out and goes to every grocery store, workplace, school, restaurant, and church and offers them Blue Zone cert- certification for optimizing their policies and their designs to nudge people into moving more, uh, eating fewer, healthier calories, uh, living their purpose, and connecting socially. And then we have a third squad that gets to about 15% of the adult population. We help them optimize their home environment. We help them join these moais, you know, create these social circles. And then we give them a free purpose workshop that helps them do an internal assessment of their values and what they're good at. And then we offer them a curated volunteer opportunity. And we know that volunteers, by the way, have a lower BMI, fewer heart attacks, and actually measurably lower health care costs. So this is a convergence of people, places, and policies. Um, they're all permanent environmental changes. So we can come in, do our work for five years, get out, and the effect can last for decades.
1: So what are some of the structural things? Are we talking... You put in bike lanes in in and or put in pedestrian malls yeah. and take over streets. Is is that the kind of thing? And what's been most effective?
0: Exactly what you said. So we have on our team a guy named Dan Burden, who was one of Time Magazine's uh, civic designers of the century, and his expertise is policies that help cities design their streets not just for cars as they've been done for the past 40 years, but also for humans. And it isn't that we come in and we ask the city to rip up all their pavement and put in bike lanes and sidewalks. Uh, there's a complete streets policy bundle, it's called. About once every seven years, streets need to be redone. And this policy simply says, the next time a street gets ripped up, a bike lane needs to go in, a sidewalk needs to be widened. You need to make sure that it's a safe for pedestrians to cross. And also what's really huge is trees. Planting trees not only invite pedestrians, but there's actually good research that it raises the value of homes sitting adjacent to those walkable streets.
1: Well, here's a factoid for you. Studies done out of the US, and I can put these in the show notes, the actual links to the studies, show that when you have trees growing in a local area, it actually has a well-being dollar value of $10,000 per person. So you would have to spend $10,000 per person a year to get the same well-being uplift from simply planting a whole heap more trees. Um, Also, trees reduce the amount of violence in in a neighbourhood. And I think that was a study that was done out of Utah but again I'll put the I'll put it all in the show notes but there's countless studies showing how a neighborhood that has trees has all kinds of health benefits. Yeah, and
0: the air is cleaner too. Mm. But you know we evolved with trees in the forest. The you know things that we evolved with tend to be good for us. Uh, just like you know the blue zone diets essentially the the, the diet that hunter and gatherers were eating most of uh, human history. Um, so so it's not a processed or an artificial food. They're eating the same thing. Our ancestors been eating for thousands of years.
1: I just want to pick up on some of the things that Uh, you may have put in place at a structural level for these cities when it comes to food because I've done all kinds of work trying to work with school canteens, trying to work with sports venues in and around getting sugar out of the the canteens and and the, the only available food that people can eat when they're at a sporting event and so on, and I've found it almost impossible. So I'm intrigued as to what you have been able to get across the line in these cities.
0: So let me tell you the secret. Please. No no city wants, nobody wants to be told what to do. Mm-hmm. And if you come in pontificating, uh, you're not going to get far. We come in with uh, bundles. So uh, for to get Blue Zone certification for a school, we come in with 25 evidence-based things a school can do to create a healthier school day for children. And we tell them, you don't have to do any of these, but if you want Blue Zone certification, get three-quarters of them done. And things that work, like – uh, the uh, school lunch in the United States is subsidized by the government. It's very hard to change that. You're not going to have much luck. But things that you can do that if you put the fruits and vegetables at the front of the line, children choose more of them and eat, therefore eat more of them. We can often get schools to take all of these sugar sweetened beverages out of vending machines and replace them with water. And we've been very successful in that. But the most important, the most powerful thing you can do. In the food environment in a school is change one simple cost-free policy, and that is not allowing children to eat in hallways and classrooms. And that simple default lowers the BMI of a school by about uh, 21% because you're engineering out you know, kids aren't bringing healthy food to school. They're eating the chips and the M and M's and the cokes and the power drinks and so forth. If they, if the only food they can eat is what they get in the cafeteria, at least you're limiting, you're eliminating a lot of the junk food.
1: And they're eating proper meals where they're surrounded by people sitting down to eat a proper meal at the required time, as opposed to snacking mindlessly because they can. Correct. That is awesome. I'd never actually thought of that. That's incredible. I suppose it, I, I really need to ask, how do you live at all? I observe you. We have our phone catch-ups every cu- couple of months where we touch base on, I don't know, the details, the flavours, the, the intricacies of life. But, yeah, wh- how are you living your life at the moment to some of these principles? What are you incorporating into your life that has meaningful effect?
0: Yeah, yeah I am uh, I weigh the same amount I do as I did in high school and I, you know, I weighed about 20 pounds more um, uh, 20 years ago, I, I eat pretty much a whole plant-based whole food, plant-based diet. Um, and I don't, I, I try not to eat, uh, refined sugars. It's very hard, you know, in the, our food supply. Uh, I know that being socially active is not only good for my longevity, it's good for my happiness. So uh, I'm naturally an extrovert and I let my, I give free range to my proclivities. Um, I'm very clear on my sense of purpose and I live it every day, I, I'm pretty much every, you know, my purpose uh, or what, what I'm good at, what I love to do, uh, where I find meaning is uh, exploring our world, focusing mostly on the traditional people, learning from their wisdom and putting their wisdom to work in other people's lives. That's what I wake up every morning and do and I'm satisfied and it's provided me a re- very great living. And the other thing I'm absolutely convinced of Your life expectancy is more a function of your zip code or your neighborhood than just about anything else. So I very proactively, I live on the Southern tip of South beach. It's a very walkable community. I live right on the ocean. So I swim almost every day in the ocean. Uh, There's healthy, the whole foods, grocery stores, healthy grocery stores within 12 blocks of my house. I ride my bike almost everywhere. I bump into friends. It turns out that, um, the serendipitous social interactions, the low-quality social interactions we have throughout the day is more predictive of longevity than even long exercise and diet. So running into the postman, talking to your barista, uh, seeing your neighbor out in the street, these things are totally environmentally driven and we know contribute to longevity. So i intentionally put myself into these
1: environments. Which was such a difficult thing for so many people during these lockdowns around the world you know, during the pandemic, because we were denied those those social interactions with the everyday people we meet in our community. And I know for me, I live on my own, and so I was in lockdown with my foster child, but my sense of meaning and belonging and well-being comes from those interactions on the street, from walking. And of course, when you're walking, it's the only way to have those interactions. You can't do it when you're driving and running from one car park to another. Yeah. I think in an email interaction we had just lining up this interview, you mentioned also that you're pondering the art of life and finding the sweet spot between, I suppose, being productive and purposeful and enjoying the juiciness of what life has to offer. And I think that's the eternal search, isn't it, for most humans, for most conscious and thinking humans. How are you navigating it at the moment, Dan?
0: Well, believe it or not, I'm over 30 and uh, I've had enormous uh, success with you know all these books and Blue Zones. And at a certain point you realize, well, I don't really need more money, but I do like to be relevant. I do like to be living my purpose. But there's also something to be said for enjoying life and finding those things that that uh, give you some pleasure and and that uh, allow you to savor life. So some of the things I I, I try to never work past four p.m. I, I work a little bit every day. Uh, I make sure I get at least an hour to two hours of physical activity, and I do something I enjoy. The days are gone, as you know. I hold three world records in cycling. I, um, I, I, I can conjure the discipline if I need it, but now my rule is I do something every day that I enjoy. Uh, in fact, you let me get on this podcast a half hour late, and I'm going to admit to you right now is because I was playing pickleball.
1: What is pickleball?
0: <laughs> what is pickleball? It's the bastard child of tennis and ping pong. You know, it's played on a on a court about half the size of a tennis court, but it's very fast. It's very social. It's almost always played with four people. Uh, it's very fun, fastest growing sport in America right now. Huh. And I'm obsessed with it. And um, <laughs> <laughs> so
1: well, That's what I was doing. My pleasure. My to- pleasure. So pickleball, pickleball and riding your bike. Yeah. What else? I mean, what else are you saying that you enjoy? Is I mean, because a lot of people find it very hard to actually navigate what they enjoy because we live in a, a world where we are so focused on attending to duty. And it's not necessarily a duty that befits our sense of what matters, nor does it necessarily serve other people, other loved ones in our lives in a particular way. It generally is geared towards being productive in the, the mechanics of the capitalist cycle. So people find it very hard. How have you navigated what you enjoy doing? Well, I,
0: there, there's two categories of things I enjoy doing. You know, One is probably unhealthy and the other one's healthy. And if you get queer on the things you enjoy that are also good for you, man, you can do those all day long. I will tell you, I, I enjoy a sip of tequila every now and again. I know you do. Often a sip uh, gets another sip and sometimes, you know, I can get in trouble. But uh, I do love a long uh, dinner. I love hosting dinner parties, you know, and so the way I spend my money is I always pick up the tab and I host, I get good chefs and I invite people and, and I, I seed the dinner party with the question Everybody, if they want to come, they need to be ready for, with an answer to the question. We have long discussions. I, I think that's good for my social life. It's good for my soul. And I serve good food, so it's good for that. I'm a big believer in saying yes to social invitations. So I always try to put that first and work second. I also find that work gets itself done you know, most of what we need to get, really get done gets done. And, you know, I wrote a cover story for National Geographic on happiness. I remember. And um, the happiest places in the world, the Highlands of Costa Rica and uh, Ohus, Denmark, they work about 35 hours a week. And maybe they don't become a billionaire or, or multimillionaires, but they're reporting the highest life satisfaction and positive affect on earth. So I think the sweet spot is Probably 30 hours of work a a, a week, uh, an hour or two of uh, physical activity every day that you enjoy. Most people, believe it or not, according to Cornell Sleep Lab, need between eight and nine and a half hours of sleep. So I try to never set an alarm unless I absolutely have to. And the happiest people, and again, this is a correlation. The happiest people are getting six to seven hours of social interaction every day, not Facebook but face-to-face uh, interactions, uh, in the presence of another human.
1: Wow. Six to seven hours. I suppose a lot of people live in families and if they're engaged with their children and their partner, that would satisfy that aspect of things. But yeah, that's a reality check for someone like me who lives on my own. And I'm an introvert. I mean, I know that you and I have clashed where you're like, come on, Sarah, let's go out. And I'm like, no, I just need to stay still. Um, yeah, that's a good reminder. But believe it or not,
0: introverts are actually happier with people than they are without,
1: but they just don't like it for as long. And and are more selective about who they spend that time with.
0: Probably that too. But, you know, we evolved as a social creature and there's something satisfying about human connection that, you know, one, I mean, we're connecting socially right now, even though we're on the opposite ends of the planet. Mm,
1: and I know you quote Vivek Murthy in your book. Uh, he wrote a book about connection that came out right in the middle of the pandemic. He was the Surgeon General to the Obama administration.
0: And by the way, he's back. He's our Surgeon General again.
1: Under Biden. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. So he wrote a book called Together, if I have that right. And he talked about the fact that, of course – Uh, we can emulate that social connection on a Zoom call or a Zencaster call from the other side of the world if we have eye contact and if we're talking about meaningful stuff. Yes. And so I think that's really encouraging in a world where a lot of my friends, my meaningful friends are on the other side of the world and you're one of them, Dan. Thank you. The conversations that we have. They have emotional contact. Sometimes it will be six months apart. Yeah. And they satisfy me, they fill my cup. Yeah, and I mean, I think you
0: sense we both, you know, care about each other where I think when it comes to friendship, longevity counts for a lot. And the fact that, you know, uh, 12 years we've been in contact with each other and seen each other half a dozen times and care about each other and are really interested in what's going on with our lives. You know, it'd be great if we could be sitting across the table with a glass of wine, but I would argue this is the second best thing and a hell of a lot better than nothing.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Well, on that note, why don't we leave it there and aim to go for a hike and have a nip or two of tequila down the track somewhere? You choose where. I'll be there. I'll map out the route and pack the, the backpacks. I love you. <laughs> um, probably within an inch of their life of efficiency. Yeah. Thanks as always, Dan. It was an awesome opportunity to just see you again.
0: It's great to see you too, Sarah. And uh, you know, if, if any of your audience has other questions. I'm at Dan Butner, and I answer every DM people send me so I'd be happy to answer questions I might not have touched on and I, I take your challenge to meet somewhere in the world for a hike as part of your next book.
1: Well, from that chat, there's a hell of a lot we can all take away and I think it all feels intuitively right. It makes sense and people for eons have been living this way and it works. Cassie and I, my producer, we we put together a bit of a list of the stuff that we took from it. So just to remind you, if you want to take these notes away with you, get a slow cooker. I mean, I've been talking about this for years and I gave you my rant. Remove the toaster from your kitchen bench. That's awesome. It essentially means you're not going to go and eat cheap carbohydrates, three meals a day. Eat beans. It'll add four years to your life. Eat nuts. It'll add two years to your life. Drink red wine. And the redder and the more robust, the better. So canna now is the variety that we talked about. It's from Sardinia. It is incredibly alcoholic and it's incredibly red. Uh, sweet potato, eat sweet potato, particularly women, because you heard Dan refer to the fact that women who ate more sweet potato added years to their lives. So women in particular, ensure that you have a notion of what the purpose to your life might be. And that takes time. It's not something that, you know, we are encouraged in our culture to to think about. But I think there's so many books out there that can bring you into that space and, of course, groups that can actually help you access that. And it might be through a religious faith, something to that effect. And I think he threw in there that having a faith of some sort can add four to 14 years to your life. And for me, I'm not a religious type, but my spiritual faith is nature. That's where I find my sense of purpose and my sense of belonging in the world. Learn to make friends as an adult. And I can see around me that so many people have fewer and fewer friends. Loneliness kicks in as we get older. And the two tips that he had that were research-based is to start a walking group. And that's a pretty easy thing to do. To reach out to someone and go, do you want to go for a walk? Or a cooking group, which is an awesome idea. It's a great way to to connect. Volunteer. And he mentioned that being a volunteer generally lowers your BMI, which might be a carrot to add to things. Your postcode matters. So if you have the opportunity to choose where you get to live at some stage, look for places that have nature. It might be the ocean, it might be a park nearby that you can go and hike in on a regular basis and a place where it encourages pedestrians. Um, That, I think, uh, is something that I've prioritised in my life. I've foregone a lot of other things to, to live in those kinds of places around the world. Work 30 hours a week if you can and I think this is where the world needs to head from a number of different perspectives and we're going to be talking about that in a forthcoming episode. This is probably the one that stopped me in my tracks. Dan suggested that we need to be getting six to seven hours of social time face-to-face every day. I struggle to get half an hour, I think, but as Cassie said to me as we, we signed off from Dan, you know, I am out in the world. I'm out talking to baristas and people in the street. I know most of the old salties that do the ocean swim in the morning that counts. And I suppose if I don't have a family living with me where I have that kind of interaction, I can find it elsewhere. And now that we're out of lockdown, that has helped me enormously. I'm sure many of you listening can relate to that. Get one to two hours of movement every day. You know what? I've always said it. If you want to get healthy, get rid of your car. It forces you to walk everywhere. It really is effective from a range of different angles. Um, He also threw in there, never set an alarm. And I do the same thing. If you can incorporate some of those into your life, it's essentially about changing your surroundings. It's not about a restrictive didactic diet which you probably won't stick to. Anyway, until next week, stay wild.